And if you would now open up to Isaiah 60, Isaiah chapter 60, we're hitting the uh, tail end of the book of Isaiah. We'll be done uh, in just about a month uh, in the book of Isaiah, and then we're going to move into Ephesians. And as you're getting settled with your notebooks and pens and Bibles, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we give thanks this morning for the small but mighty ways you are blessing us to be part of your eternal plan of bringing the nations to know your love and gospel truth. We pray that the church in Gondrin and in Burkina Faso would be a powerful force in northern Burkina. We pray that many would come to know you by the faithful service of the pastor of that church. We pray for the money that we were able to give to IJM, that each dollar would multiply in its effect to give resources to those bringing freedom to the enslaved. And this morning, we pray for all of Western Oregon University. We pray for all the administrators, all the faculty, all the teachers. We pray for all the students, that your grace and mercy and love and truth would move through those who know you on this campus, and especially those that are involved in the ministry of crew. We pray that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray lastly that you would help us this morning to understand what that means, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would help us to understand the depths of the mysteries of your word as we immerse ourselves in the light that it brings. So we ask now that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to say a word this morning, uh, and I want you to grab hold of what comes to mind um, when I say this word, and then I want you to hold on to it as we go through the study today and kind of compare it to what you originally thought. Um, The word that I want you to think about is this word, heaven. How many of you immediately start to think about Tom and Jerry? Anybody do that? Okay, a couple honest, yeah. All of us that are kids, no, no, just kidding. Uh, We immediately think about something along those lines. Or maybe we think about clouds and harps. How many of you thought of that? Anybody? Yeah, okay, a few more people. All right. Some of you think about family members that you miss, that you've lost, and you hope to be reunited with one day. For some of you, your mind goes blank. You don't know what to think about heaven. For some, possibly, that are even here today, maybe you think to yourself, It's only a fictitious wish dream. There is no such thing. The question of heaven, the question of the afterlife and of eternity, these are things that weigh heavily on the human mind because no living human being actually knows. No matter how many inside editions or gossip magazines state that people came back from the dead, no one truly knows what the afterlife is all about. And so while the word is clear that when followers of Christ die, they enter into the presence of the Lord, what we're going to see today is that this idea of eternity future, or what we might summarize in the word heaven, is actually something very different in that it focuses not on what happens to us when we die, but it it happens to focus on the eternal purpose and plan of God. Scripture gives us tons of information about this plan, But often it's given in kind of this ambiguous poetic language. And I don't know about you, but poetry is one of the hardest things for me to read, right? About as close as I get to understanding it is the whole, you know, roses are red, violets are blue kind of thing. That's about my level of poetic understanding. But the reality is, is that in the midst of these ambiguous statements, we often have tons of information that because the New Testament gives us clarity to it, we can understand what the Old Testament is saying. And what I believe we will find as we look through Isaiah 60 and 62 and then next week come back to Isaiah 61, what I believe we will find is this. What we view as the eternal purpose of God drives how we live our lives today. Let me say that again. What we view as the eternal purpose of God drives how we live our lives today. At the beginning of the Bible, heaven and earth were in essence one. You see, the Bible talks about heaven as the place where God's presence is, and his presence was here on earth. He walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Can you even imagine that? That this God that we now can't see and have to have faith in, he was standing there in the presence of humanity. 
But mankind rebelled against God and chose to desire to trust ourselves rather than to trust God. And so instantaneously there was a split, there was a division. And so, since that day, heaven, or God's presence, and earth have been divided. And I think the reason for this idea that we were just talking about, that how we view the eternal purpose of God drives how we live our lives today, the reason for this is because I think that from the get-go, from that division, all of mankind, all of humanity, and all of creation was groaning to get back to that place where heaven and earth are overlapped again. We know that they're split innately. We can sense it. There's a brokenness around us, but something inside of us wants to bring heaven back to earth. And so all of us, we drive at that ideal. God himself even told us that we should pray this way. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Jesus said to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a eventual reality that will occur where God will once again be one with his creation, but right now they're divided. And so everything in us drives towards this idea of bringing heaven to earth. And so what we view as the eternal purpose of God, shorthand heaven, drives how we live our lives today. Let me give you a few examples. If we believe God's eternal purpose is, well, let's say I'm an atheist and I believe that Uh, There's nothingness after death. And that's the eternal plan. That's the eternal purpose. Well, guess what? In this life, probably one of two things will happen. I will either think nothing matters. I'll start singing Metallica's Nothing Else Matters, right? Or I'll go the way of, man, this is all I have. I better live it up today. How I view eternity will affect how I live today. For many of us who are Christians, we might think God's eternal purpose is my prosperity, And so heaven is this place where we get to be at rest from physical labor. We get to do what makes us happy and rest for eternity. And we get to be autonomous and independent. And so what this does is this drives us to work to bring that ideal to earth. We work for raises and success and money and vacation and comfort. We work for retirement because that is our attempt to bring heaven to earth. Maybe we believe that heaven is to be an escape. We believe that God will one day pull the Christians out of here and destroy the world. Well, that creates this eternal perspective that God wants us to be free of discomfort and pulls us out of it. And so we are going to easily press towards that ideal in our lives. Anytime there's discomfort, we'll remove ourselves from it. It breeds easy divorce, passive aggressiveness in the church, hopping from church to church anytime there is a problem. When relationships are tough, we will flee because our idea of heaven will impact how we live. What we view as the eternal purpose of God drives how we live our lives today. And I think if you ponder this enough in your own life, it will help you understand what you think eternity is all about if you observe the way that you live life. But as we'll see today, if we view heaven as the place where God's presence brings reconciliation to the world, to his creation, and his love and his justice dwell there, then we will start to act in a way that brings that ideal into our current day lives in the world around us. Well, let me give you a little bit of context after this introduction into what we're about to read today. Remember that Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. This is why God chose them. They were supposed to have an allegiance to this God known as Yahweh. Everybody say Yahweh. Yahweh. They were supposed to have an allegiance to this God known as Yahweh above all other gods. And so God chose them and said, hey, I want to basically use you to draw all nations to me to understand me. He said this in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules. As the Lord my God commanded me, this is Moses speaking on God's behalf, that you, the people of Israel, should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep these and and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, 
And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The way that they were supposed to live life was to show this totally different character of this totally different God and draw the pagan nations around them to him. But they failed at this. They started to worship those other gods, and they started to do unrighteous actions. And so God gave them over to their idolatry in the service of those gods. And this resulted in them being defeated and drug away into a foreign land in exile to worship the gods of that land. You see, God was being gracious to them. They were living a life that was saying, I don't want to worship you, God. I want to worship these idols. And he said, okay. And so they got drug away into exile. And at the point of chapter 60, where we start today, these exiles were beginning to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem, to their homeland. And they're starting to see that God is not going to do any drastic, miraculous salvation in the moment. They're trickling in slowly. They didn't see any immediate salvation over their enemies, no immediate rebuilding, no immediate heaven on earth. And so they started to doubt that God was involved at all. And they started to say, God, how long until you bring the fullness of heaven on earth, that you bring back your kingdom. And so throughout Isaiah, God has been encouraging the people, saying, I will get it done eventually. You just have to be patient. And he's been showing them that his promises will hold true, and he will fight for their salvation. This is why at the end of, verse, or at the end of chapter 59, he says a few different things to speak to them that he's fighting on their behalf. Look in your Bibles at Isaiah 59, starting in verse 16. He says there, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What it's saying here is that God went to war for his people. And how did he do this? We learned this two weeks ago. If you go down to verse 20 in that same chapter, how does he go to war? He sends his son, a redeemer. And a redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And verse 21, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. In speaking all of this to Judah, God was attempting to encourage them that Jerusalem would not be completely destroyed. It would not always lie in ruins, but it would be rebuilt and would have at its center, seated on its throne, the conquering king of Israel, this Redeemer. This redeemer that brings them victory. And through this picture, this idea of a nation rebuilt, a city with its walls, keeping it as a fortress, and this king at its center, through this picture, God is about to tell us about his eternal purpose and our eternal future. In our words, he is showing us what eternity will be like, and I assure you, it is far from harps and clouds and Tom and Jerry. It is far different. And if we understand it, it will drive how we live. To show us his eternal purpose, he's been using this picture over and over again. Let's look at Isaiah 2 here really quick. This is Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 3, all the way back a year ago when we started Isaiah. It says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, that name, Zion, is used often in Isaiah. It's used 55 times in Isaiah, far more than any other place. It's one-third of the times it's used in the entire Bible. And this word Zion is one that we just pass by really quick. I was talking to somebody recently, and they said, man, I've been a Christian my whole life, and I've never, ever heard that Zion meant Jerusalem. It's a nickname for Jerusalem. 
But Zion actually means more than that. Zion means a monument that is raised up. That's what the word Zion means. A monument that is raised up. It came from the idea of Jerusalem being a fortress and speaking to the power of the conquering king, King David. Now, we're familiar with this idea if we think about it. We're at a university, and so, you know, I'm trying to give you guys a little bit of uh, mental uh, work here. Um, Let's take a look at a little history. Here's the city of Ramses. How many of you have ever seen this before? Anybody? Okay. I could have thrown up a picture of the pyramids. That would have been another one. But these cities were built a ton by the Egyptians to show the power of the conquering pharaohs. Okay? It was a normal thing to do. You overtake an army or conquer another kingdom, you build yourself a city. That's kind of what happens, right? Um, here's another one. This is the Ark or the Arch of Titus. This was erected in Rome in order to speak to all the victories that the general Titus, the Roman general, had had, including over Jerusalem. Uh, it looks very familiar to those of you who've ever been to Paris, uh, to the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, that was patterned after this arch. And so we conquer, we build something. That's basically the idea of the ancient world. And so when we think of the ultimate eternal heaven, the new Jerusalem, the Zion that the Bible talks about, we're talking about a monument that is erected to the victory of God as conquering king. This is the old mentality of the ancient Near East. Now, you might be thinking, Hans, this is totally boring. You give us way too much history. I'm not in school yet. It's just orientation. Give me a break, right? (laughs) But the reality is, is to understand this section of Scripture, you have to understand this piece. When a king conquered, he built a city. He built a monument to speak to his power. And so what we're going to be looking at today is the question of, well, if Jesus is the conquering king, what does he build? And so in 60 and 62, we're going to see that this monument of Zion, it speaks to the power of the conquering of the kingdom of darkness by Jesus Christ. So let's start with this first idea that's up on the board there. Zion is a monument to the conquering king. Zion is a monument to the conquering king. Now again, this may already be tough for us to grasp in our Western culture and mentality. When we think of heaven, I think you'd probably agree with me, it's primarily in our minds a place where we go when we die. How many of you think of it that way? Right? When somebody dies, they go to heaven. But here the kingdom of heaven is actually this statement of Zion, this monument that's built for the conquering king. It's not incorrect to think of heaven as a place because it's God's presence that the righteous saints go when they die. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But monuments are to reflect their leaders. How many of you have ever been to Washington, D.C.? Okay. Does Abraham Lincoln look like Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. It's a reflection, hopefully. Wouldn't that be bad if you, like, just got somebody wrong and it's a totally different person and we haven't known it all these years, right? Monuments are supposed to reflect who the conquering king is. And Washington, D.C., quite honestly, is one giant monument to the fathers of our country. Well, this is what was supposed to happen with Zion as well. It should reflect Yahweh. Let's take a look there at chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord, and remember, anytime you see Lord in all caps, In the Hebrew, that is the name Yahweh, that the Hebrews, out of reverence, won't pronounce. We're Americans who seem to have no reverence, so I'll tell you the name. Um, But that's Yahweh, okay? The glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." Now, there has been debate for many years as to who the you is throughout this chapter. Does it change? Is it the same person? But it seems to me, as you'll see as we read through, it's very specific who this you is. Keep your your eyes kind of here, but look with me really quickly to Isaiah 60, verse 14, the second part of it. It says who the you is. They shall call you the city of the Lord, it says at the bottom of verse 14. The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. It's speaking of the city here. 
If you keep your finger here and you just go a little bit to the right, to 62, and you look right at the beginning of verse 1 there, it says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. The theme throughout 60 through 62, because they're, they're intimately connected, as we'll see today and next week, is that it's speaking of this city, the city that was built as a monument to the conquering king. In both of these verses, we are told that it's Jerusalem, and Zion means Jerusalem. Zion, or Jerusalem, should reflect Yahweh. But let's keep going here in Isaiah 60 and see if Zion is truly this city that is made of bricks and mortar and walls and buildings. Okay, let's take a look in 60 verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on your hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the, sh- the sea shall be turned to you. Now, the sea in Hebrew symbolism always meant the Gentile nations, the place of chaos. And so the sea, the nations, will be turned to them. The next line, it says, The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news the praises of the Lord. Those of you who know the three wise men story, right? We don't know if there were three. There were probably more. But they were coming with gold and frankincense because of this. If our king is truly here, if the Messiah that's written in the Bible is truly here, then we, the Babylonians, shall go to this king. And they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Verse 7, All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you, and rams of Nebaioth, shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful, Jerusalem. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflict you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of the nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. See, Jerusalem was a city forsaken by God and left in destruction because of their idolatry. But God is promising the Israelites and the people of Jerusalem that he will redeem it and bring it back to such a state that the world will be drawn to it And the king that is enthroned at its center will draw the nations. Now, if we just look at this, we think, oh, man, how cool will that be that the city of Jerusalem, the geographic location, will get built back up and Jesus will reign there. So many commentators over the years have taken this literally to mean that this is only a promise for the physical nation of Israel. And they've got good backing for that. There's a lot of things I I can't argue with. But I think if we keep looking at this, we're going to see that this means more than just the physical place of Israel, the physical place of Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. In other words, he's going to build it back up. I will make your overseer's peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. 
You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. That sounds pretty good, right? Days of mourning ended. The Lord is our everlasting light. He says, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am Yahweh. In its time, I will hasten it. As we read through these verses and we hear this, as New Testament followers, people who've read the New Testament, we should be hearing verses ringing in our head of what Isaiah is talking about here. We have to understand that he's talking about something more, more than just a physical location of a rebuilt Jerusalem. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Revelation, to the very end of the book. And look at Revelation 21. And I'm going to take you through a couple of places here in Revelation 21. We've spent a lot of time here in Isaiah, but it's good to remind ourselves of what's going on. John, the person who wrote Revelation, gives us clarity as to what is being talked about. He uses much of the same language. You'll hear it's almost word for word. Revelation 21, take a look with me at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In other words, the earth was not like it was before. This doesn't necessarily mean the earth we're standing on gets destroyed and something else gets created. In fact, it probably means that it gets renovated, like a house being renovated. It says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more not meaning the oceans, meaning the chaos of the world. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be, uh, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember how we talked about it at the beginning? Heaven and earth becoming one again? Okay? Skip down to verse 9, just for the sake of time here. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Don't worry about all that. That'll just get you confused. And spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Okay, so we all start thinking, cool, we get to see a person here. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Remember Isaiah 2, that Jerusalem will be lifted higher than the rest of the mountains? And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Had a great high wall with 12 gates and gates. Twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And he goes on to talk about the foundations and the gates and the walls, giving us much symbolism. Look down at verse 22 with me again for the sake of time. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." And then he goes on to speak about the Lord being present. And he finishes in 22.5 with this. He says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The people of this city are the exact same people that are spoken to in Isaiah 60. They are the redeemed by the Redeemer. 
And we learn that this group of people is pictured as a city. But guys, realize that buildings are meant for shelter. And if the Lord is present and the earth is redeemed, there is no need of buildings, no need of shelter. It is the actual people here, the bride of Christ, the church, that is the restored Zion that's being talked about. Now, this is hinted at elsewhere throughout the New Testament. Let me give you just one of those places. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. This is Hebrews 12, 20 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. See, not earthly, heavenly. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. That's us. That's the church. Who are enrolled in heaven. How many of you students, you found out you were enrolled, you were accepted into the university before you ever stepped on campus? Anybody? Okay. That's exactly what we are right now. We're not present in heaven, but we have gotten our letter through the Lamb's book of life that says if you accept the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you give your allegiance to him and follow him as your Lord and Savior, you are part of this group, this assembly of the firstborn, Jesus Christ who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This heavenly Jerusalem is what is being talked about in Revelation. It's what is being talked about in Isaiah. God was trying to give encouragement to the people of Israel to let them know, you guys are so focused on the here and now and rebuilding with bricks and mortar that you're missing the eternal plan of what I'm doing through you. So the ultimate fulfillment of eternity future is the fullness of what we now call the body of Christ. You guys... Dwelling with God, that is the eternal purpose of the Most High Creator God. Think about that for a second. It's not building the mansions in heaven with the streets of gold where you get to go play all day. That is not the purpose. In our Western mindset, that's what we think it to be. It's not getting all the goodies that you've never had on this earth, but you get in heaven. That's not the purpose. It is us dwelling together in covenant unity and dwelling with God in covenant with him. It is a king, Jesus, ruling by his law of love, righteousness, and justice over his people, the church. Notice the words that Jesus has here in Matthew to the church, to his disciples, the fledgling church that is just beginning. You are the light of the world A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is speaking the same message to his followers, the church, that Isaiah is stating on behalf of the Father. Let your light shine. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Collectively, as the church, here in this local setting, in other churches that are meeting right now, throughout the global church of the world, anyone who professes Jesus as Lord and Savior, throughout those people shines the love of Christ through our love one for another. And it is this building of the church that shows the power of the conquering king that we serve. And it's in this building of the church, reconciling together people who it doesn't make sense that we dwell together. We just had our first restart to community groups this last week. And I was so blessed by our community group. I was looking around and I saw people of varying ages, varying backgrounds. There were people from Kentucky and people from Oregon. Uh, there, were people from, there was a person from Mexico, right? I was looking at and I'm going, okay, this is the church. People who naturally don't have an affinity for one another. It's so easy to grasp onto somebody because they're like you, but the church is called to love one another regardless of whether or not you're alike. And to watch the church over the years work through conflict and grow in reconciliation and do the things that people in the world are unable or unwilling to do, that building of the church, that reconciliatory spirit 
is what shows the power of the God we serve. Look back with me at Isaiah in chapter 62. And we're going to see a very similar statement and spirit of Isaiah. Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation is a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here we see the same idea that we've been talking about. You can write this down. This is the next big point. The reconciliation of the nations makes Zion a monument to the power of the king. The reconciliation of the nations, bringing them together to one another and together to God, is what makes Zion a monument to the power of the king. See, Jesus chose not to build a physical city. He didn't build statues. He didn't build pyramids. He chose to build a building made out of us. Now, it's way easy to build a Lego brick building, isn't it? It's way easy to put bricks on top of one another. It is extremely impossible to build a building using humans. I jokingly call pastoring hurting cats, right? And most of the time, it's hurting cats who are angry with one another for one reason or another, right? Because we're human, we're broken, we're hurt, we're protective of ourselves against one another. And so God, in his miraculous wisdom, said, if I want a monument to the power of the cross, to the power of salvation, to the power of reconciliation, I'm going to do it with people. And so the reconciliation of the nations makes Zion a monument to the power of the king. Just as the Ark of Titus or the city of Ramses speak to the power of their conquering armies, this new city, Zion, the new Jerusalem, will for all eternity be stating victory over the conquered armies of darkness and rebellion. Now pause with me for a minute because even as we start to talk about that, remember that we're not talking about an architectural triumph. We're talking about people the body of Christ. It is truly a feat of supernatural strength to bring the group of us, this disparate people, together. A group of innately selfish people, together. And he's empowered us by the Spirit to love one another and glorify Christ. This is why Jesus said, it is by your love one for another that people will know you're my disciples. Not by what you state with your mouth, but by the action you live as a group of people. Now, there are a couple of key metaphors throughout Isaiah 60 that I want to take you through. And as you see these, it's going to start to put the puzzle pieces together and you're going to fully understand what I'm talking about. This picture of Zion has a bunch of metaphors that are used throughout the New Testament. Here's the first one. Go ahead and go to that next slide there, Cameron. Zion is going to be compared to the church. And the first thing that we see here that we just saw in Isaiah 62 is this idea of a bride. This idea of a bride. In 62, there's this abundance of wedding language. For Israel, this means that they will be redeemed from their adulterous behavior and chasing after idols. But it speaks more than that. In the midst of the New Testament, we are told that a man and his woman, uh, his wife getting married is like a picture of Christ and the church. And Revelation says that the celebration that all of us are going to have, we're going to have a good little barbecue out here today, but it pales in comparison to the celebration that will occur when Christ and his bride are fully reunited. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Go with me back to Revelation and look at Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. 
It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, meaning people from all over the world. All through Revelation, it speaks of many tribes and languages and tongues coming together. And it says, Like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And what are all these people singing? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, how has she made herself ready? Well, we know that the Bible says that we are saved not of our own works, but by the grace of Jesus. But once we are justified by Christ, accepting of his free gift of grace, then it says, verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so the saints preparing themselves is really the saints doing what they've been called to throughout Isaiah 60 and 62 and the things we've already seen, that by their activity, by their love for, for each other, they speak a gospel truth to the world that draws them towards the church. Guys, I've been doing this Christian thing a long time. And praise God, he has used moments where I've gone to people and, you know, done a drive-by evangelism. Hey, did you know that Jesus died for your sins and he wants you to go to heaven and here we go, let's pray the sinner's prayer, right? He's used that. And I don't think he, I'm not against that. Here's what I do know. The Bible doesn't focus on that. What the Bible focuses on is we love each other and draw people into that love by what they see. And I've been honored as pastor of this church to watch in our interaction with DHS to see people who have no desire to hear the gospel slowly but surely be attracted to who Jesus is because of how we love one another and love the world. I've gone to Burkina Faso and I've watched as Muslims, dyed in the wool Muslims, go, you know what? I see something in you guys loving each other that is different. It is the love that attracts the world to Christ. If we attract with the bait of when you die, you get to heaven, we're actually teaching them the wrong focus. If we attract them with what Christ called us to, love one for another, we're going to see amazing, miraculous work. In bringing together this world full of disparate people, God is speaking of his strength and his power. Well, the second uh, picture that we see throughout Isaiah 60 is this picture of of a temple. We see it in Isaiah 60, 13, and we're also going to see it in Ephesians here. Go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll remind you what Isaiah says. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and hopefully you're writing these down so you can go back and study them again later during this week. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 11. Let me remind you really quickly what Isaiah 60 says. Let's go to the next slide there, Cameron. It says in Isaiah 60, verse 13, The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. What an odd statement, the place of my feet. How many of you refer to your homes that way? The place of my feet is in Monmouth, right? Well, he means something very particular here. The place of my feet is speaking of a temple. In the ancient Near East, the temple that you would go to to worship was where people viewed that heaven met earth. It was the one interaction point. And so for the Jews, they had the temple in the center of Jerusalem. But as we know from history, that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So is there no temple anymore? Does God not interact with the world at all anymore? No, because what the Bible tells us is that God is present in a temple. He is still interacting with this world. And here's where he says it. He says it in Ephesians 2. Look at what he says there in Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So you're called Gentiles by Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments 
expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, how do people know Jesus in this world? they got to go to the temple, which means interaction with you, which means interaction with those who are saints sent as salt and light into the world to serve people in the name of Jesus and show their love for him. For him. And so we understand this and we look at this. It's kind of like this, guys. Imagine if one day you turn on CNN and on one side of the TV you've got President Donald Trump. And on the other side of the TV, you've got Hillary Clinton. I'm going to, see, I'm going to offend both parties here, so I got both, okay? And they turn to the center of the stage, and they walk towards each other, and they shake hands and give each other a big hug, and they say, we have buried the hatchet. What would you do? I, I'd go, is it the rapture? What is happening? Forget September 23rd and all those guys. This has got to be something big, right? Or imagine if you saw Democrats and Republicans playing nice with each other. Or imagine if you saw Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un go to the table and sign an agreement that they could both agree on. You'd think something miraculous had happened, would you not? Imagine if the Blazers and Lakers didn't hate each other. (laughs) Something miraculous had occurred. It is by the unity and the reconciliation that occurs between people who, quite honestly, because of our sin, should hate each other all the time. Why? Because you don't want the world to be like I want it. But the Lord, through his miraculous work, brings us together and reconciles us just as miraculously as he brought both Gentiles and Jews together. And Paul is speaking in this amazing way, saying, guys, don't you see how miraculous this is? God is building this amazing city with a temple at its center that is Jesus Christ and his people. And it's proving to the world his conquering power. Well, there's also uh, third, you can go to the next slide here. Third, there's the picture of the branch. There's the picture of the branch. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 and Isaiah 60 uh, seem very similar. In Isaiah 60, verse 21, it said this, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. He uses yet another metaphor in Isaiah 60 to speak of this city, this group of people being built, this branch. Well, Paul speaks in Romans 11, starting in verse 11. Let's take a look. Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall, speaking of the Israelites? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, when Jesus draws them back to himself. He says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my own ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, God will bring back some of the Jews who believe in Christ as their Messiah and he will save them just like he saved some of the Gentiles. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17. But if some of the branches, meaning the original Israelites, were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, 
do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. It's kind of like this. It grew out of the ground, out of a guy named Abraham that was chosen by God to be the father, right? Remember Father Abraham? That many sons. You can sing it with me, right? Okay. Starts at the root. And it went up, and they started to fall away from Yahweh and worship idolatry. So he broke off those branches, and he grafted in a new branch, the people of the Gentiles. And that grew for a while, and Jesus Christ was at that center point. It was at that point of the joint where the Gentiles were grafted in. Jesus was the one that brought them in. But through Jesus, Jews can also be grafted back in if they choose to follow Jesus as Messiah. And so this idea of the branch of Jews and Gentiles who should hate each other, being grafted together in reconciliation, love for one another, this speaks of an amazing thing. And Paul was telling the Roman church to let them know, guys, you can say whatever you want, but if you don't act in love and reconciliation towards one another, you're ruining your witness. You have nothing to say to the world. It is in your reconciliation that you show that Jesus is conquering king. And this will be seen as we focus on Isaiah 61 next week. But the last thing I want to show you, I could show you a ton more, but just for the sake of time, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3. And I believe Paul will give us a good concluding statement here that will wrap up our thought and help us to fully understand this. In Ephesians 3, starting in verse 4, Paul is going to explain to us all that we've looked at, that the building of this thing called the church will speak to the world and to the powers of darkness that Jesus is the conquering king. Just like the Ark of Titus speaks to the fact that he was the conquering general. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, when you read this, speaking to the church at Ephesus, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Anybody read Isaiah 60 before today and kind of seems like a mystery, right? You read it and you're like, what is he talking about? And that's a lot of the Old Testament, if we're honest with ourselves. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Remember the branch, remember the bride, all of it talking about reconciliation between two people groups who should hate each other, one who should be completely opposed to God. Of this gospel, the gospel that brought them together in Christ Jesus, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now let's pause for a minute and truly understand what Paul is saying here. When mankind rebelled against God, our relationship with him individually and corporately was severed forever. And as mankind's sin grew worse in chasing after false gods and idols, things that did not glorify God, he gave us over to the worship of those things, causing our division from him to grow and our division from one another to grow. 
And out of this idolatrous people, God called Abraham, the father of Israel, and he eventually brought through Abraham's offspring a group of people known as the Israelites. And he gave them law through a man named Moses. And so God called the Israelites to, by their own volition and choice, live a life that followed him, reflected him, and told a world opposed to him that he was a good God and would give forgiveness to anyone who asked. But it didn't work because we cannot, through our own laws, our own choice alone, choose to serve God. It's not in us. We're completely depraved. But through Israel came a man named Jesus. And Jesus ministered on this earth to show the character of God. And in his death on a cross 2,000 years ago, he was the ultimate sacrifice that forever atoned for the penalty of our rebellion against God and one another. And in his resurrection from the grave three days later, Jesus proved that all division between God and man and even death itself was now destroyed. And I know for years I thought, well, there is the Zion. There is the monument to God's conquering Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus continued from there and he sent out his spirit, a helper, regenerating Holy Spirit into his disciples so that his victory and reconciliation over sin and death that was proven in that resurrection is now available to any who choose to come to him. All of you that choose and have chosen to come to Christ through his sacrifice on the cross, through his blood, are his church. A word that simply means the assembly of God's saints. And it is this worldwide body of Christ and us as a local church that is a monument in the midst of the world to the victory of God over the powers of darkness. In the Roman Empire, the Caesars, in order to make themselves feel good, would put little tiny statues of themselves all over their empire. And those would be signs to the world around them that this guy's the conqueror. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. In local congregations and in each of us as individuals, God placed his image throughout his empire saying, I have conquered and I am coming back. This is the eternal purpose of God. That through Christ, his people, the church, would be reconciled to him. And so the last point that we see today is that God's eternal purpose should drive how we live today. If this is the eternal purpose, if this is the gospel that Jesus died and resurrected to give us atonement for our sins and forgiveness for all that we've done in rebellion against him, and in accepting him as Lord and Savior, we are brought into his church and we participate in that church body as a sign to the world of his conquering kingdom. If this is what the eternal plan of God is, then that eternal purpose should drive how we live every day. Remember how I asked you to hold on to the thought of what you thought about eternity future or heaven. See how different what the Bible actually says is than anything we've come up with in our Western Christianity. The truth is, is that that is the eternal purpose and, uh, and plan. And we are the blessed ones who get a chance. Maybe heaven and earth are not completely overlapped yet, but in the church, in the midst of the church, we start to be able to give a picture of those two spaces coming over the top of one another, interacting and intersecting once again. And so because of this, God calls us to live a life that reflects that truth. Go back with me to Isaiah 62, and this is the last place I'll turn you, and then we're all done. Isaiah 62, and we're going to finish the last two verses there. Isaiah 62.10, it says, Go through, go through the gates, and prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. In this text, 
that finishes off Isaiah 60 through 62, we start to understand this idea that this eternal purpose should drive how we live today. The first thing that it should do for us is that it causes us to come to grips with a question that requires a response. For anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ and does not follow him, the question you have to wrestle with, and I demand of you because the Bible does today, is what do you do with Jesus Christ? What do you do with Jesus Christ? If everything that I have said today from the Word of God is true and real, then God loves each one of you so much that he gave his only son in an initiation of a plan to bring about reconciliation with you so that you can spend eternity with him. My question for you is, what do you do with that? You either have to dismiss it or you must choose to accept it. My question for you is, will you choose to accept that gift this morning? Will you go through the gates of his kingdom, enter into the body of his family known as the church that exists right in this room and in communities of faith around this area? If not here, then I beg of you to enter the gates of a kingdom in another local gathering, another local congregation, where they will teach you the true word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in John 10, 9, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And today, all you must do if you want to enter into his kingdom is to simply accept what he did, to confess him as Lord and Savior, and to give your allegiance and your life to him. It sounds super easy as it rolls off my lips, but it is incredibly hard because it causes you to lay down everything at his feet and to walk with him. If you want to do that today, I'm going to be in the back during worship. And I would love for you to come talk with me and I'll pray with you and I'll talk to you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. That's the first thing. If we believe this eternal plan to be true, it should affect the way we live. But secondly, this truth helps us to hold out hope even when our questions have no answers. When Jesus appeared, so many did not believe him because he did not immediately usher in a renewed Jerusalem. He did not immediately give them what they were asking for in the here and now. Instead, he showed them a far greater kingdom. So many of us in this room are stuck because we view the point of eternity as our own prosperity or escape. So we don't, when we don't get those things in the here and now, we seize up or we get angry at God or we lose our faith. But if we view life through the lens of that future kingdom, and the proof that Jesus brought in his resurrection and that he's presenting you with this morning in this room of believers. What we wrestle with and what we mourn seems to lose its power. Whatever you're fighting today, whatever you're fighting today, recognize that while sorrow exists for the night of darkness that is this temporal existence, God's fullness of joy is coming and it will conquer any disease, any cancer, any divorce, any relational break. If you are a disciple of Jesus, whatever you are mourning will not have the last word. Knowing this truth causes us to live life out of that space. And lastly, this truth of God's eternal plan helps us to have an accurate view of what the eternal future looks like and how to bring that kingdom of heaven to earth in the here and now. If we are the ones that are partnering with Christ to prepare the way for the people, then we are going to remove any stumbling block in our own lives and in the lives of others that create a barrier for people to come to Christ. One commentator on this section says, we have a responsibility to live in a way that makes it possible for the nations to see the light of God reflected in our walk. A responsibility that every believer must accept so that they can be an effective witness to the work of God in their lives. I am so thankful to be part of this church, part of a church that is actively engaging in work through IJM and in the midst of Burkina Faso and Haiti and Indonesia to bring the gospel of God's kingdom to the earth as it is in heaven. I am so thankful to be part of a church that in the midst of our community groups is beginning a journey of being able to proclaim the gospel to our neighborhoods and our coworkers and our schoolmates through our love one for another. It is our love for each other, even when that love seems difficult, or resolving conflict, even when it seems impossible, that stands as a monument, a Zion, to the power of Christ. 
through these community groups and through other small groups within our church, we are creating a place into which we can welcome others to experience a small glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. We even get to see it here today as we engage in a meal together. And so as we finish today and as we go to communion, let us hear God's proclamation over us as his followers that we are his holy people. We are the redeemed of the Lord, the sought out and a city not forsaken. We are the monument that speaks to the conquering king's victory. And let us go to the tables of communion and take of his, a symbol of his blood and a symbol of his body. And before we do that, to confess any sin that entangles us, any sin that might mar the reflection of Christ and might muddy the light that is expressed out of us through the Holy Spirit. And let us determine to be a church that together prepares the way for all those around us to be welcomed into the kingdom, kingdom of the conquering king. And for those of you that are part of crew, know that by your love one for another and by your activity in the work of Christ on this campus, you will draw your fellow students, even if they have everything against Christ, when they see the love you have for one another, it will draw them to know who he is.